Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Luke 15. Um, We'll pick up exactly where we left off last week, and we'll keep working our way through Luke. Huge multitude of people are listening to Jesus at this point. He has infuriated Pharisees, where he has questioned their legitimacy, and he has a multitude of people that are really tuning into what this guy has to say. He has a different kingdom that he's talking about. Uh, He explains suffering and evil. He's explained the kingdom of God is waiting for fruit. That's why we still exist, even though evil is happening. And he is continuing to move towards Jerusalem. All of this is like in Luke, there's just this massive sequence of teachings as he's heading to the cross. And we get little hints of that. Uh, Jesus has just used the logic with the Pharisees. If you do this for animals, how much more should you do this for human beings? If you take your animals out of a pit on Sabbath, shouldn't you help heal people on the Sabbath? If you, um, uh, what was the other one here? My goodness, I need new ink in my printer. If you loose your ox or donkey from the stall and let them go away and feed on the Sabbath, shouldn't you let people come and get the word of God on the Sabbath? So how much more are you supposed to be loosing people from bondage, healing people? He's defining that Sabbath is about more than just not working. Sabbath is about doing the work of God on the Sabbath and that that's okay. And so we as Christians look at Sabbath very differently. Um, Jesus shows us the truth of how we care for animals properly. Um, The animals in the first century, if you want to modernize that to today, how much do you care for your car? How much do you, well, not everybody. So how much, how much do you care for the appliances in your house? How much do you care for the things that are in your life that you use every day? And if you put that much care into your own life six days a week, on Sabbath, shouldn't you put that much care into other people, right? As just a modern version of that. So Jesus is showing us those truths. In, in chapter 15, we're building on that and we get three parables, the sheep, the coin, and the sun. And the sheep, the coin, and the sun is moving sheep, animal, coin, stuff you own, sun, human being. He's using the same logic sequence where he said, if you do this for donkeys, shouldn't you do it for humans? And then he does this set of three parables where in the way Luke has set it up, he's using that same logic thread. Chapter three shows, chapter 13 shows who won't get into heaven. Chapter 14 shows who will get into heaven. 1433, those willing to forsake all for Jesus are the people that get into heaven. Are you willing to forsake all so that you can follow Jesus? Pharisees are offended by this, largely because their works aren't going to do it for them. Their fancy robes won't get them into heaven. But sinners have hope. You get to verse 1 at that point. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him. When you give the sinners hope, they draw near to Jesus. When you yell at sinners, they go away from Jesus. Does this make an image? Like the way Luke paints this picture, it's that when we... Maybe some of those people that have made huge mistakes are actually closer to a path to heaven than those that are holy and think that they're righteous on their own merits. Jesus also just ate at the Jewish leader's house, 
Now he goes outside that house to invite more. This is very akin to the feast parable he just told. He starts with the Jews, but if the Jews don't listen, he's going to give the invitation to the Gentiles. So Jesus is actually living what he just got done preaching. Only the idea is that he's the master of the feast. But he, they can't say that he didn't go to them first, right? The promises of God is that the Jews would get the Messiah, that it was a special gift to this unique group of people. So by Jesus going to the Pharisees, he's actually kept that promise. But as they reject him, he's going to go out and invite other people because heaven won't be empty. It's going to be filled with people. So where is God's heart in all of this? How does God see this picture from any idea, how do we see this from a heavenly perspective? All three of these parables show us the heart of God. You know, this idea of, well, there's lots of evil in the world and people that don't forsake all to follow Jesus, how small is heaven's population going to be? Jesus says, no, 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 it's going to be full. We're going to fill up heaven because this is God's heart. And then we get right into these parables. All the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You'd think they would learn about attacking Jesus, but they don't. Um, on the other hand, while the self-righteous are now complaining, those interested are drawing near. We have a huge contrast that Luke has painted. The man receives sinners and eats with them. But he went to the Pharisee's house in the last chapter. It's not like he didn't start with the Jews. But now at this point, they don't really want to eat with them anymore, so he's going to eat with somebody. So again, it fills this up. There is an accusation that draws out the love of God. I think that's important. It is the evil accusation and mischaracterization of Christ that helps us to see God's heart. He wouldn't tell these three parables without the accusation. And all three parables are a response to the accusation. If God is not defiled by us, but we're purified by him, drawing near to sinners is exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to purify some people because he wants to. The Pharisees don't see this as fair, but they're blinded and that there's obvious in the accusation is that they are, <laughs> I just want to point this out again, unclean spirits have a characterization to them that if you read carefully, you can see in Luke, every one of these unclean spirit interactions have the same benchmarks. They complain. As shepherds, they should be happy with that sinners want to hear the grace of God, shouldn't they? That, that should be their intent. But these folks that they failed to reach, now they're just complaining that they're getting reached. So there's a complaining there that doesn't make any sense what of all. They miss all of it. They miss who Jesus is. They miss who the people are. And they miss what's happening when they eat together. So here's how they twist it. They, they, they say this man. They can only see Jesus in carnal terms. Remember Jesus went to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Right? He's not just a man, but the Pharisees' accusation has these lies just baked into it. They say, this man, they don't recognize that he's the Messiah. Right? And he's just healed that guy from dropsy right in front of their face. It's not like they don't have evidence. It's not the evidence that matters. It's the heart. Then he says, receives sinners. They misidentify those who want to be with Jesus. All they see are sinners, but from a heavenly perspective, they're under, underestimating that these are people that are going to be saved. They're saints in the making. 
And all they see are sinners. They have already come to Jesus. They're already eating with Jesus. They're already drawing near to Jesus. And if Jesus is the purifier, but they can't see that because they just say he's a man, then they can't recognize what real freedom looks like. Real freedom is sinners coming to Jesus. But these aren't sinners anymore. They're future saints. They're future servants of a heavenly kingdom. They're going to get into heaven before the Pharisees do, if the Pharisees get there at all. Also, what does this imply that they're thinking? That sinners should be rejected? They should be kicked out of the wedding feast? That they shouldn't be received? And Jesus comes at this in a very different way. Third major lie that's embedded in the, in the complaint is that he eats with them. That's true. But it's also not true. Is all that's happening in that room that Jesus is eating with people? He's just sharing a meal. That's all that's going on. But again, they have blinded eyes to the reality of things because they misidentify the activity. They misidentify Jesus. They misidentify the sinners. They misidentify the activity. Jesus isn't sinning with them. Jesus is helping to teach them the way of the kingdom of God. He's not approving of their vile past. He's not being tainted by their presence. He's sharing a meal so that he can heal, love, and build relationship with sinners. I think this is beautiful. We should be the same way. If the power that is in Jesus, the Holy Spirit that's in Jesus and Peter and Paul is also in us, we don't get tainted by sin unless we embrace it. The opposite can happen too. Now, some people take this to an extreme and they mean, well, we should just be hanging out with sinners doing sinful things with them so that we can bring them into the kingdom of God. No, we don't redeem raves. Like, that's not how that works, right? But we can have a meal. We can eat with people. We can get together with people and share the kingdom of God with them. And we're not just eating food with them. Jesus Messiah receives future saints to share the kingdom of God with them. That's what God thinks about this situation. But the complaint mixes up all three things and just warps it. So that said, praise God for the complaint because we get these three parables. Here's the first one. So he spoke this parable to them saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me. I've found my sheep, which, I have lo- which was lost. I say to you, again, Jesus is speaking on his own authority in verse 7. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Wow. Uh, We should start with the idea of sheep. I've talked about sheep before. They are preposterous animals. First of all, if you see sheep in a sheep pen and you lean over to try to pet one, they're they're as likely to headbutt you as they are to get pet. Like, this is sheep. They're They're not bright. They have thousands of years of breeding in domestic in domestic settings which means if they're out in the wild they have zero instincts whatsoever gone sheep will do things that will kill themselves out in the wilderness they have self-defeating behavior as a flock they'll generally follow one sheep in the flock who may or may not know anything about how to survive in the wilderness this is why they need shepherds They need to follow a shepherd that will lead them to green pastures because if the sheep becomes a shepherd, they lead themselves into error all the time. And whole flocks can get killed by not having food or water because they follow after the one who said they knew what they were doing. 
They get lost, they get scared, and they get distracted. This is what sheep are like. And God compares us to sheep. We get lost, we get scared, we get distracted. And that's, you know, this isn't, I think God made these sheep just so he could make this parable. Because there is no other animal like the sheep that is as clueless other than perhaps human beings. They leave their natural safety so that (laughs) the natural safety of the sheep in the wild is the flock. A lot of herd animals are like this. If there is a predator, the one that is the weakest and the slowest gets killed, which means everybody else is safe, right? So as long as you can outrun the slowest sheep, you can survive, right? And that's this thing. Sheep will, unlike other herd animals, sheep, when they get scared, will actually scatter and not stay together as a herd, making them more vulnerable to more predators. They will go out and find predators because they'll hear the noises of predators and think that's the noise of the lead sheep. So they will actually go towards the thing that will destroy them. Sound familiar? After they're separated, I just love the sheep stories. After a sheep gets separated from the flock, it occurs to them, oh, I'm lonely. What does it do? Does it return to the flock? Oh no, it starts to bleat. It makes, it announces to the world that it's all by itself. Saying to all predators, hey, look at me, I'm all by myself and I don't know where I am. Making it even, so sheep do the worst things. Um, Sheep rarely, if ever, wander back to the flock. Everybody in Jesus' audience knows this, which is why the story of the lost sheep is so relevant. It's because it happens all the time. It's a common occurrence that one of the sheep out of the 99 will get scared of something. And by the way, they can get scared at like a rock getting stepped on the wrong way and making noise. And they'll just bolt off. Um, This is sheep. This is what they're like. So they scatter off. Um, In Ezekiel 34, 5, it says, and they were scattered, talking about people, because there was no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. Again, this is a common thing for people that know sheep. They just, when they leave the flock, they are meat. And it doesn't say dead meat, it just says meat. So we can see that God or Jesus has the heart of a shepherd. This is how God thinks of us. He's a shepherd. And if it wasn't for God leading us in the right place to the right things, we, our tendency is to get distracted, to leave the flock, to go off by ourselves, and to get ourselves killed and announce ourselves to predators and sin what we're going to get into. So he sends us the spirit. He sends us his servants, his disciples, he sends us other believers where iron can sharpen iron. The heart of the shepherd, if you look at the parable, is that he finds the sheep and he lays it on his shoulders. As a shepherd, God's actually willing to help, to carry, and to lift the helpless human being back into the flock. And the direction the shepherd goes will be to return that sheep to the flock. What's our flock going to look like? We'll get to that in future chapters. But he's claiming here then that Jesus or God is like a shepherd unto sheep which are like humans. Isaiah 40, 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them at his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. 
The other attribute of God here is that God rejoices when someone gets found. And again, this is a response to him eating with sinners. It's actually a good thing when somebody goes from living that way to living after the shepherd and coming into the kingdom. A sinner is not someone we push away. It's someone we draw close to. But not so that we can embrace their sin, but so that they can embrace purity and come in that direction. So if we are to be like Jesus, then brothers and sisters, I just want to be like Jesus. In that, I want to do what the Messiah does. I want to be like my Messiah and be someone who gathers sheep into the fold. It also says, he will rejoice with me. He also wants to share his joy. This is God's heart. When a sinner gets saved, he wants to share that joy with everybody else. A sheep has come home to the flock. A sinner is coming over for dinner. That's a winner. The Pharisees should have joy when Jesus is teaching and meeting and eating with sinners. But the implication is that a responsible shepherd still owns their sheep. Look at how it says there, the shepherd says, my sheep. Even when a sheep is lost, they still belong to the shepherd. They're still part of that flock, even when they're gone. So without having joy, the Pharisees really aren't shepherds at all. And this is actually a condemnation for them. They don't have a heart of joy for sinners getting saved. They were commanded to do such things. The priesthood was called shepherds way back in the Old Testament. So the fact that they don't have joy when a sheep comes home, they're actually complaining about it. This points out again, these Pharisees aren't doing their jobs. The sinners are supposed to have shepherds that go look for them. Listen to this, Numbers 27, 17. This is the institution of the priesthood. This is one of their commands. Which may go out before them, which may go in before them, and which may also lead them out, the shepherds leading the people, and which may bring them in to that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep that don't have a shepherd. They were told to be shepherds. And so Jesus uses this parable and is, is taking a shot right at the heart of the Pharisee priesthood. The Pharisaic priesthood doesn't have love anymore. It doesn't have joy anymore, and it doesn't welcome sinners anymore. In fact, in some of the rabbinic teachings, they're actually supposed to reject sinners to the point where they don't talk with them, they don't meet with them, and there were entire neighborhoods in Jerusalem that the Pharisees would not walk into. One sinner who repents. The word there for repent in the Greek is metanoio. It is to change one's mind, think, to think different. The same root word from which we get metamorphosis. Complete change and transformation happens on the inside. So one sinner that changes or transforms is what makes heaven rejoice. So if God seeks these people, God saves these people, God lifts these people, and then God returns these people to the flock, all the sheep has to do is repent. Be transformed. Stop running away from the flock. Jesus frames this as the sinner's only need is to repent. God does everything else as a shepherd. All the sinner has to do is say, I'd like to be different. And then God helps them become different. So Jesus is not just this man, as they accuse. He's actually the shepherd. And so he's correcting that first part. The second one, he corrects who the people are. Or, verse 8, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found this piece which I lost. 
I'm assuming there was a prior phone call, which is like, pray for me, I lost a coin. Otherwise, this is just an, an odd thing that she's kind of sharing. Likewise, I say to you, verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same word. Finishes this parable the same way he finishes the last parable. First of all, if Jesus is not just the man, he's a shepherd. The people are not just sinners, they're silver coins. And the way God looks at humanity is that these souls have great value, even if they're lost. And this is why we go after sinners. They have intrinsic worth. At this point, these coins, it says a silver coin. Uh, the word there is drachma, uh, which is odd because they live in Jerusalem, which would use the Roman denarii. So he actually uses the term for the Greek silver drachma. There's a reason for that, which I think is super cool. Um, the word drachma in the Greek means a handful, right? So it would be a handful of silver coins at its inception of the word. And even by today's standard, if you have a handful of silver, that's worth a lot of money. So this, this Athens also is known as, there's a, a silver mine around Athens, which was internationally known and respected because the Athenians used an honest measure. So even Greeks can do this, right? The reason the silver drachma was more valuable than other silver coins, including the denarii, is the Romans had started to cut their coins with copper and other metals. But Athens kept pure silver in their coins. And pure silver being an image of the heavens, uh, of purity. Um, there's a research in nine, 1997 by Siddha von Rieden. Um, that documents the use of these coins for weddings. A bride would be given a tiara or a headpiece made of 10 silver coins. It is likely that Jesus is making a reference to a wedding gift and that one of those coins, now that adds a lot of emotion to this, right? One of those coins falls out of your wedding tiara and you're going to go looking for that coin because it's more than just the value of the coin at stake now. It's this image of the covenant that's at stake. The Bible doesn't say that. It only alludes to it. Um, but it's perhaps why Jesus says there's a woman in this story and not just some person, right? Do you notice how it's a woman in this story? Um, a woman would have the 10 wedding pieces and they would be precious. If they were precious and made of Athenian silver coins, that's an even more valuable thing financially. Losing a coin then, yes, you're going to light the lamp. You're going to sweep the house. Sinners have lost the promise of the bridegroom. They've lost their inheritance. And the image stays the same. When we're born, God wants us to come to heaven. But as we go through our life and think of ourselves, we sin. And we lose something when we do that. We've lost our inheritance. So we see particular elements in the search. Again, I'm getting really particular because I think God's word is perfect. Jesus, every one of these words Jesus picked. And he thought about it. The woman lights a lamp. Lighting a lamp is an image of God's will through his word throughout the scriptures. Light is that. And John even compares Jesus as God's word that when we see the word of God, Jesus is the word of God. He's the light of the world. And when Israel was supposed to be a light of the world and when Christians are supposed to be a light of the world, the way we shine is to let God's word come through our mouths and our lives. Then sweeping the house, an image of cleanliness, like across all cultures. Cleaning the dirt and the garbage out of your house is an idea of tending things and taking care of them. Searching carefully, actively, and continually looking for people. So you think of this as how do we look for the lost? 
We shine out God's word. We get the sin out of our life and we look for the lost. We seek them. We pursue them and we go after them. The lost aren't coming to us. And I don't know if you've noticed that, but if you don't introduce the topic of spiritual things in a conversation, there are thousands of people on this earth that will talk about nothing for hours on end. If we don't bring up that topic, they won't. We have to seek them. Where is your heart with God? What do you think of Jesus Christ? What gives you joy in life? Those kinds of questions introduce deeper conversations. Searching carefully. Where did that coin roll off to? I also see implicit in the searching carefully, I imagine a woman on her hands and knees looking under sofas, looking under chairs, checking the cracks in the floorboards if there are any. Like the, the idea of being on your knees in prayer to me fits right in with this image. Searching carefully calling her friends and neighbors. Imagine that call. Hey, what's going on? I just found my coin. Oh, good for you. That's great that you found your coin. Sometimes when we share our excitement about a lost soul getting found, and you share that with people outside the household, they don't always know why you're so excited about this. Why is that such a big deal? But when they understand the value of a human soul, they can be excited with you. And you tell other Christians, they're like, Man, that's awesome. And we share this joy that I, I just don't think people share. If you think you come from the goo, there's not much value to a human life. But if you think you're created by God individually, intentionally, there's a, so much value in one human life coming close. Both the shepherd and the woman share the news that they found. This is interesting when we think of the heart of God. There's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner. It's used for both. The parable is an image of how the hosts of heaven react to our decisions, not how the Pharisees react to our decisions. What other humans think of our behavior is simply not relevant in either one of these parables. What the hosts of heaven do, and what they see, those sinners eating with Jesus are precious souls. They're not just sinners. They're silver coins. They represent a covenant that God made with all of humanity. And all they're doing is finding that covenant again. They're of more worth than metal. They are silver, minted, weighed, guarded, and so are you. God made you, he minted you, he created you, and he made you precious. You say, oh, I've got flaws. He even gave you those flaws. They have something to do with the character he's trying to build in you. You're sealed to a promise, and when a soul goes astray, God is urgent about seeking that coin. Sheep and coins cannot repent. They're, they're animals and they're, they're metal coins. So Jesus goes way out of his way to make that point that in both stories, there is a repentance that happens. So the accusation, this man receives sinners. No, he's not just a man, he's a shepherd. And Jesus doesn't just receive, he values and he seeks. He's happy to find sinners repenting. They aren't just sinners doomed to be identified as such forever. They're precious, lost, and worthy of being found. Every word in this accusation is simply mistaken. And Jesus is systematically correcting every element of that accusation. Then he gives his third parable. Parable of the lost son. <laughs> Much less abstract in this one. Not sheep and coins and abstract things. He's going now at humans. There are lost humans that need to be found, and here's God's perspective on that. The story is going to show two reactions to the prodigal son. The father's reaction 
and the son's reactions. And as you listen to this parable, think of it this way. Who's the father in, in heavenly senses? God, the father. The sons would be all these human beings on earth. And you'll notice that the father's reaction is extremely different than the Pharisee-like good son's reaction. And so Jesus, again, is being a lot less abstract, but he's staying in parable mode here. Verse 11, then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Give me everything. So he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, for no one gave him anything. So Jesus sets this up, explaining how some people get lost. Uh, yes, it's his fault that he's lost. Like, he, like sinners don't have an excuse outside. They wanted the sin. It's their fault. And, and there's no doubt in this story how that gets set up. He has an inheritance, but he wastes it. Um, just like the coin might be an image of a covenant, in this sense, he has an inheritance coming to him. He has a home, and he leaves it. He has family and friends, but now he finds himself alone. The, factually, the father allows all of this to happen because he's honoring his son's choice. That's called free will. And he permits the choices of the son because if the son's going to be there, he's got to be there because he wants to be there. That's it. So the word prodigal, it's the only use in the entire Bible that we see this word, which is why we say the prodigal son. Like, we don't have another word that gets used. It's very hard to interpret. It's the word asotos in the Greek. It means to be abandoned, dissolute, or riotous. To be, to be acting in such a way that there's no control over the behavior. Dissolute. There's no backbone to this person. No strength. And if you think of sin, it's a really interesting word there, that sin is to be given to recklessness, to just not have order in your head, to just go whichever way your instincts tell you to go. Well, this looks interesting. I'll do it. And there's no measure to it. There's just an, a proliferate activity, intention to live without care or to be lost and without intention in your life. Likely, people will even rush to do this. To be prodigal, there's no work, there's no responsibility, there's no duty, there's no order, there's definitely no law. You're just wild. And in that sense, when it said, but when he had spent all, the natural consequence of sinful living is for a while it might be fun, but at some point the fun runs out. There's just nothing to it. And all human beings, I think, come to a point before they come to Christ where they realize they've lived life their own way and there's essentially nothing to it. Smart people figure that out younger. Dumb people figure that out a lot older. Or, and, and hopefully their hearts aren't so hard that they can't see it. Um, but when he had spent all, in, in other words, the, the luxury that he didn't earn, the blessings that he didn't have, they were an inheritance from the Father. He went and he wasted all the things God had given him or the Master had given him. Then there's severe famine. Then you get to this idea where the end of lost prodigal living is a deep and unfixable hunger Lost humans don't bleat so we get eaten further. Lost humans simply depress or get angry. We get hungry. 
we realize there must be more to life than this. And that can be some, something that grows to be an extreme gap in our heart and in our life. To be in want, in the Greek, this is an, a, a, an extreme, emphatic, single word, hysterio, where we get the word hysteria, only they have it in stereo. Hysterio, behind, fallen, and short, there is a state of being to be in want, to be fallen short. We don't commit sins, we are sinners. Does that make sense? Like it's not just that he did stuff and lived a riotous thing. It's not the things that he did. It's the person he was becoming. He became hysteria. He became in want. The fun starts, it runs out, there's deep hunger, and then there's this deep state of destitute inferiority. I am a failure at everything I thought I would be good at. They're fallen and they've fallen short of something. The dissolute life is ultimately a fallen life. It is less than what God intended for that person. What God intended for that person was family, home, inheritance, work, order. Then he joined himself. Again, the way Jesus sets this up, it doesn't, like, it takes me a half an hour to process two sentences from Jesus. You ever think of that? Then he joined himself. What does it mean to join yourself? The word there is, is the kind of bondage that you glue or cement something together. So he binds himself to a sinful world and a master that's out in that world. We think if we live a wild lifestyle, nobody's our boss. But at the end of the day, we are gluing ourselves to sin. And it becomes harder and harder to get away from that. He cleaves to others that don't love him. In fact, his new master just wants to use him and, and consume him. He doesn't care if he gets sick working in the swine barn and gets a cold and dies of a fever. He'll just hire somebody else. So he glues himself to a master that will put him into destitution and then note where he sends him. He sends him into the fields to feed swine. This is the lowest kind of work, even amongst the Gentiles, for three reasons. We know the first one. Pigs stink, right? They're smelly. It's disgusting work. You can get used to it at some point, but you have to literally kill your olfactory senses to get used to working with pigs. Number two, it's impure. According to a Jewish person, uh, pigs were not to be eaten or touched or gone around or anything in the first century. They had not had the Peter's dream of, you know, eating things and, and God purifies. Swine were absolutely spiritually unpure, not just physically impure. Number three, it's kind of dangerous. Swine were often used as the garbage dump because they eat everything. If you trip in that mud and fall down and the pigs are hungry, they'll eat you. So if you've got a dead body, they would feed it to the pigs to dispose of the body. So pigs are extremely dangerous. Not only that, they didn't necessarily cut the, the, the tusks off the boars. With any herd of swine, there was likely one boar in there just to keep the babies coming. So there would be one boar that was going to probably go after somebody that went in there. So they better like you and know that you have food. Lowest form of work. So he takes a job that's utterly not acceptable to the Jews. Leviticus 11.7. And the swine, though he divide the hoof, and he be cloven hoofed, yet he cheweth not the cud, he is unclean to you. They're not supposed to go around swine. He would gladly have filled his stomach, it says. He's still got that hunger. 
and the sinners desperate to try anything, even unclean, stinky, not nauseous, putrid filth, starts to look good to somebody who's at this state. He'd, he'd eat anything. And he looks at these pods. We don't know what the pods are. They're, we call them carob husks. Um, they're used to fatten up the swine so that when they're killed, they're good and fat. We use corn for this purpose today, but we don't use the good corn that we eat off the cob. Have you ever tried to eat like feed corn? It's disgusting. And I know this from experience. It's absolutely like when not much else looks good, the pods were even worse than the feed corn. Not only do they not taste good, but they actually look like locust eggs. Like they're disgusting in appearance and in taste both ways. So no one gives them anything. The way that Jesus ends the setup is interesting. We're supposed to pity this guy. And it says, and no one gave him anything. Like at the end of the day, sin consumes. It doesn't give anything back. It doesn't fill. Cheap thrills at the beginning, nothing at the end. No family, no friends, no pity from anybody for this guy. Now a Pharisee can easily say, yeah, he got what he had coming. But from God's perspective, from the Father's perspective, nobody's helping this guy. Nobody is standing in the gap for this guy. Can you imagine getting to heaven and seeing that people you love aren't there because you didn't bother to have a conversation with them? Don't they have an accusation to make against you? That person knew the truth, but they didn't give any of it to me. They just kept it all to themselves. All because you're scared of what people think of you. But this guy's starving. Sin is wasteful, verse 13. It is wanting, verse 14. It is binding in verse 15 and abusing. It is unfulfilling, verse 16, and it's lonely, verse 16. This is how we think of sinners. Is the son stupid and foolish? Yeah, he is. Is he unclean and he's stinky? Yep, he is, because he's still coming home to his dad with pig slop all over him, right? Is he ready for our sympathy? Yeah, he should be. There should be a little part of our heart that thinks this guy's really had a tough go of it. Did he make all of his own problems? Yes, but for a father, who cares? Bring this guy home. Clean him up. For humility to begin, one has to per see clearly the fruit of pride, plan, and purpose. The human pride, human plan, and human purpose simply leave us wanting and empty and lonely. And then in verse 17, it says, but when he came to himself, I think this is great. Suffering actually helps the man to think clearly. It is the suffering. It is the evil in his life that helps him come back around. He's, he comes back to himself. The state here is then to be an heir of the father. It is not to be a sinner. To come back to oneself is to get away from sin, not the other direction. Do you see that? Does the father owe anything to this kid? No, he gave him his inheritance. He's gotten everything from the father that he's going to get. But sins don't define who he is. When he comes to himself, he returns to the idea that he is an heir. He is better than the swine. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger, he starts to make comparisons. Even the lowest person in the kingdom of God is better off than anyone that's out in that world away from the kingdom of God. At least they have bread. At least they have the word of God. You can be nothing at a church, do nothing else but just show up and hear the word of God. At least you get the word of God. 
There are sinners that live seven days a week and they never hear the word of God. Week after week, month after month, year after year, they get nothing of it. They don't even have bread and they don't, that especially don't have bread to spare. There's no end to our ability to believe, to receive blessings. Think of this image. Our blessing is only limited by our willingness to eat and stay with the Father. We get more than enough and then some to spare. That's, oh, I've had enough bread for now. You ever, we were, I was at the pastor's retreat this week and it struck me that I, I can do about three sermons and I've had enough. Like after about three sermons, they all start to blur together. Like the points from each start to blur together. And then you get to the fourth sermon and you're thinking about other things because you've had your fill, right? You guys are like dickers that happens in about 50 minutes. So wrap things up. You've had your fill. You've gotten all the points that you can handle for the week, that you can absorb for a time. But isn't that the blessing of being with the Father? That you just, you get all you want every day. You do devotions. Some people do devotions for 10 minutes in a, a day. Some people do devotions for an hour, two hours, because they got different appetites. But what a blessing to at least get the, at least get bread, at least get the word of God. But the comparison is drawn. They get bread I'm perishing with hunger in verse 17. The lost sinner comes to a point where they realize the happiness they're going to get in the, out in the world compares nothing to even the least of these in the kingdom of heaven. At least these people get the word. At least there's some peace in that. There's no argument that needs to happen with a sinner when they reach this point. They actually know the end of sin and the filth that it resides in. And they don't have to be convinced they just have to be shown that there's an option to the pig slop, that we are the party. We, are, we don't dwell in pig slop over here. Do you want to come? And what happens with a sinner sometimes is then this internal conflict starts. Well, I don't deserve to be with the clean people because I'm dirty. And nothing can clean off this pig slop. I've been with the unclean. I've, I don't deserve any. I already had my inheritance. God already gave me a chance and I blew it. You ever hear people talk like that? I don't know if I can come to church. I'm not, I'm not a church person. No, no, no. You haven't come to yourself. You haven't realized who you are yet. You, everyone is a church person. Everyone is invited to the feast. And then, it, it, and then Jesus goes on. I will arise, verse 18, and go to my father. He resolves. I'm going to go back. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you and before you, and I no longer, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. What a great, humble attitude. He's broken. Again, this was a theme at the conference too, that before people can repent, they have to be broken. They have to realize that their own path is so destructive, it's not even worth having any part of anymore. But notice in verse 18 and 19, he is not home yet. He's just decided to go home. And there is a difference between making a decision to go home and actually going home. And so the, the key moment here is the decision to go back home, but it's simply a decision, a choice to return. It's simply repenting. I'm going to switch my direction. In verse 20, he actually does it. His actions follow his thoughts. This is one of my things. We've talked a lot about this. To decide to follow Jesus is not the same thing as following Jesus. He has to actually go home in order to get home. So my father, um, no mention at all of his old boss, I like this, the glue that he, he bonded himself to the world simply doesn't have any strength because the focus is now on the father, verse 18. 
Part of repenting is to turn your attention from the world to the Father. Sin likes to stick to you and claim you, but it really doesn't have that kind of power. And the decision to leave and go to the Father, all that's there's just this sin that covers this guy, literally pig filth. But he says he wants to go to my Father. He logically concludes this. It's not a feeling. The feelings got him into his pig friendships. It's recognizing the difference between his pig buddies and a father who loves him. And again, think about this when we evangelize people. Like, what are we evangelizing to? What are we sharing with people? You have a father who loves you. It's the difference between eating and starving. Spiritually, it's the exact same. It's the difference between having something to eat and having nothing to eat. If you don't know what that feels like, try fasting. And know the difference between being hungry and being fed. And it will help you understand the spiritual condition of those that are lost. He doesn't try to redeem the pigsty. I want to point this out again. Sin is sin. It's not very powerful. But it, it, as he decides to go be with the Father, some Christians will say a prayer of salvation and then they'll say, I want to redeem all the filth that I live in. So they get out a mop and they start mopping the pigsty. Or, you know what? You're still in a pigsty. You have to leave that place and get out of there. You can't, you can't get rid of sin. You have to run from it and just part ways. You can't make a pigsty less filthy and less unclean. And the same is true of sin. All those sinful things that were part of a past life, you can't redeem those things. They are the, the filth. So he just leaves it. He's gone. I think this is great. He doesn't go back to say that he's quitting. He just walks out. He doesn't lecture his pig-owning boss about the impurity of pigs. He doesn't, he doesn't go in and say, this pig stuff is unclean. You shouldn't be doing it anymore. Nope, he's just leaving it himself. Good riddance. He goes to the father and he goes home. And he's not going to even debate or argue with those people he's leaving behind. He now has a new will, not to lay down and die with the pigs, but to arise and go. Literally, that's the word. Arise and go. Not go away, but to return. Not to leave the Father, but to speak to the Father. Not to assume a role, but to fall humbly as a servant. He's not going home saying, I'm the, I'm the inheritor. I'm the, I'm the prince around here. He's going home saying, I'm a humble servant. I don't deserve anything. Right? We see new Christians and they'll come into fellowship or come into belief. And they have that same attitude. Man, all these people at church, they're all these holy, clean people. I'm nothing. I'm a dirty sinner. And there's a humility to that that can ride for a couple seconds before they realize Jesus purifies them. He goes to the Father. Father, I have sinned. Make no mistake, this is not an error. Um, he doesn't say he failed to see the goodness in himself, right? And that the only chains are chains he has made. That's not the wording here. He says, Father, I have sinned. He owns it. I screwed up. I lost it. I made a mistake. He's not... He doesn't use language like, I have failed to live up to my inherent goodness. He's inherently foolish. He's inherently sinful. And he says, against heaven and before you, that's two different sins. Even in the parable, this is a spiritual issue. It's not a relational one. He's sin, sin is evil in rebellion against heaven, the laws of heaven and what God intends for our life, but it's also sinning against other people. It is a broken relationship with the Father. So yes, you can break the Old Testament laws, that's sin, but the worst part is you do it before God. You wreck your relationship with God when you defy his laws. 
there's a brokenness there. And then the phrase, the humility of this, the brokenness of it, I am no longer worthy. I don't deserve anything. Throwing off this human tendency to think I deserve, I should have, I should get, I am worthy of this and that. This is a creeping sin that can be really deceptive. But the biblical version is, I am no longer worthy. I don't deserve anything, Lord. Anything I get is, is freely welcomed and not deserved. He freely admits that he deserves nothing, that his worth is not inherent beyond what the Father ascribes to him. And we can say the same thing. He says, make me like one of your hired servants. Hired servant isn't family, they're paid. Right? There's a bond servant that's actually part of the family, the whole stake in the doorpost through the ear thing, where you're bonded to someone. And he was bonded to the, his master in the world, but here he not, doesn't even ask to be a bond servant. He has to be a hired servant. Just, just let me be here so I can eat some bread. Or we call this at church, this is called grazing. You're not here to be part of the herd, you're just here to graze some of our grass. That's cool, come on in and graze. Just hear the word. Let it feed you. Make me one of your hired servants. He's entirely throwing his feet at his father's, or he's throwing himself at his father's feet. He admits his sin and he throws himself there asking only for the mercy of the father. Spiritually, I'm only worth what God can make me. All I can do is repent and turn towards my father and trust that my father will pick me up, carry me, clean off the floor, find the lost coin, and welcome me home. So I walk into the kingdom saying, what can I do? How can I help? How can I serve? Lord, what do you have for me? Remember the context here is sinners and tax collectors eating a meal with Jesus and the Pharisees accusing them of just eating. And Jesus making this into a, such a, a, maybe the Pharisees are even sitting back going, like, we didn't mean all that. And Jesus is like, yes, you did. You don't recognize the behavior of the kingdom of God, that sharing a meal is a spiritual activity, and it's important. It's not defiling Jesus, it's helping to heal the lost people coming back to the kingdom. Why would they want to come back to the kingdom if there's no food? If there's nothing to eat, what's the point? You ever know anybody that visited, I visited a church once and it was boring and I left? I tried that experiment and there was nothing there. Right? This is the problem with churches that aren't ready to feed. So maybe he even used some of those words. Maybe Jesus was even having these conversations with the people at the meal and he's working them into this parable. Some heard of the bread of the word and they drew closer. Verse 1, Jesus received them. Verse 2, and maybe they said something like that. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy to eat with you. You speak of this kingdom of God and I know I'm a sinner. I've lost my chance I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy. I'm a failure. I like to think that this is the conversation before the Pharisees interrupted so rudely with their complaining and their disgruntlement and their hard hearts. Jesus maybe said something like, after breaking bread and handing it to him, saying, brother, sister, I actually came here for you. I came looking for you. I'm here because you have an inheritance and a worth in the kingdom of God. And my kingdom has many things for you to do. I got work for you to do and I have a place for you. And that's exactly when the Pharisees would have interrupted in the middle of those conversations. Imagine the healing that was going on. So verse 20, he arose, came to his father. 
I like verse 20 because it's exactly what he decided to do in verses 18 and 19. But now he's actually doing it. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The fact that he had, he arose and he came, he didn't just think about it. He didn't just say a prayer about it. He actually does it. This is the difference. This is what makes the difference. For your intellectually lost sinners, thinking about it can be the placebo for becoming a Christian. Right? There's actually nothing in it. Just to think a thought. But to actually do it, to resolve to it and make it happen, Jesus shows how God feels about repentant sinners. This is God's reaction, that they're coming home. And for the humble, Dad, I'm filthy, like it would actually be hard to get kissed when you know you're covered in pig filth. Right? You ever seen people work at a farm all day and they kind of get dirt in their pores? And the sweat mixes with the stink and the filth? This dad runs to him and then Jesus uses really graphic language. He fell on his neck and he kissed him. Falling on his neck is an image of a hug, a full embrace. Nothing held back. Like it's a Brita hug. Right? And then kissing him, like the Pharisees had to cringe when they heard this. He has pig uncleanness on him. But Jesus isn't talking about what's on the people. He's talking about what's in the people. And what's in the heart of the father is to run towards the father doesn't care at all about that stuff. In the same way that God doesn't care at all about the filth. The filth can be cleaned, but the soul has to come home. He doesn't even make it all the way back to the family. I like this. He makes the decision to come. He arose and he moves in the right direction, but he doesn't even have to get to the farm before the father meets him. And sinners, it's the same way. You don't have to be perfect to come back to the father. You just have to decide, arise, and move. And God will race to you to get there. The father meets him. The word there is ran. It's emphatic. He ran to the person. And then full on falls on his neck. The love of a father is unashamed in this regard. And you have to think this guy's thinking, I don't deserve this. I'm too dirty for my dad. Um, But what do you do when a dad comes running at you kissing? Like there's nothing you can do. He's joy filled. Each kiss from the father purifies the son and shows the son as welcome. Then verse 21, and the son said to him, I like that he kind of comes up with his script. Like he's planned this script. He's going to say it, dadgummit. Even though the father's actions have changed the tone of this enormously. But he says, verse 21, the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Again, the sentiment is correct. And the way Jesus paints this, this is exactly what a sinner should be saying and thinking. He doesn't even get to the make a servant part that he had planned. Like, can I just be a servant? It's like the father cuts him off. Like, I I get your prepared sentence, and yes, it's the right sentence, and you have the right heart. But there's a a repentance that's pointed out with the sheep and coin. In this parable, we get to see what the repentance looks like. Change of heart. Instead of going away, he's coming back. And that's the difference between knowing something needs to happen and actually doing it. Just saying the words means very little without the actions behind it. Again, for the truly broken, this kind of grace would have to even hurt. 
if you really don't think you're worthy and God showers his grace and love on you, it had to just like, can you imagine kind of pushing his father away? Like, you don't understand how dirty I am. Please don't. I don't think I can handle that love. Have you ever met a, a newly saved person when they walk into church for the first time? You see the same physical behavior. It's like, I don't deserve to get hugged. Like, just, you don't understand how bad I am. Like, I don't deserve to be with you, all you clean people. And, and to get that much unwarranted blessing has to feel like it's almost too much, right? To turn on the light after you've been sleeping in the dark all night. Really, God, I'm okay. I just want to eat some bread, but I, you don't need to love me. And just keeping that distance, keeping that wall up, and just, I'm just okay to serve. I've humiliated you. I've done it in your face. I've squandered my inheritance. I don't need anything. I'm not worthy. God, it's too overwhelming. It's just too much. But God the Father overwhelms all of this and just drowns him in kisses. And then the robe instantly stinking up the best robe and then a ring gets put on his hand and then sandals get put on his feet. It's like blessing after blessing after blessing. And the, and and all of these things are getting put on before any shower happens. Do you guys notice that? He's taking the best robe and putting it on pig feces, man. The best sandals are on the feet that were walking in filth. Like all of these things, it's like he's ruining the things. But in the parable, there's no in- inclination of that at all. The heavenly perspective is very different. I feel this sometimes too, and I think some of you do maybe. God, you don't understand how unworthy I am. I don't deserve these blessings. It's too much. I deserve punishment. And you have human beings that recognize the justice that's required. I deserve whatever I have coming to me. I've failed and I've fallen short. God's response to that is, oh no, I'm going to give you more blessing until you understand how much I love you. Your sin simply doesn't matter in the face of the Father. God's blood covers it completely. So there's this pouring on that happens in 22 and 24. It's like saying, Sean finally humbled himself. Now I'm going to pour out all the blessings that I wish I could have poured out on this guy. And he does the same for you. When you finally come to a point of brokenness and you finally stop thinking you're worth something after you've fallen short and you come to that point where you say, God, I'm not worthy. I don't even know if I can handle more blessings. And then God just is like, let me just pour it onto you. So verse 22, like, but the father, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, a symbol of authority and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The response of all the people, the father shares it just like the shepherd did and just like the woman did. And everybody's happy about it. This is great. They're not just eating a meal with Jesus. They're being welcomed. And even in verse 24, there's this image of resurrection. Remember, Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. He's throwing in these things about death and being alive again. They're finding the lost. And some of the Pharisees, servants may be thinking, really, this guy, this punk that thought he was better than us, needs a more riotous living than we have. He gets all of these blessings. There's a bitterness that starts to arise in some people's hearts. Why do you like this sinner more than you like us good people? 
Why do you pay attention to the new person that shows up to church when we've been here for 10 years? Why do you do that? And there's a heart that comes into those that are walking with the king where we think, why does God shower the blessing on the new person that came home? Why did they get all the stuff? Verse 25, now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come because he's received him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. So he's out in the field, verse 25, he's doing the work and that's not a bad thing. Pharisees are doing the work. They're supposed to be doing that work. And the inheritance for this son comes later. There was a tradition where as a son, you could ask for your inheritance now and use it. Kind of not a bad deal. Or you could wait for your parents to die and then you get your inheritance then. But if you use inheritance now, then when they die, you don't get a share when they die. So it's kind of a, do you think your parents are going to get more wealthy throughout their life? Or, you know, you can claim that inheritance whenever you want. But this is a son that's, he's invested himself with the father till the end. He hasn't asked for his inheritance at this point. He's going to just do the work at this point. So his work and his toil actually has value to the farm. He keeps the kingdom going. And these Pharisees have kept the kingdom going since Moses, right? These Levites and these priests, they have, they have scribed the word of God over and over and over again with meticulous care. They have kept the histories, the records, the prophecies, the genealogies are all being maintained by these people. They've kept the images of God throughout history so that when Messiah shows up, they're all ready to be used. We're reading this Bible every week because of the work of the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and because of what they did. So you think of this son who's in the field, he's doing the work, and this is a danger of being in the kingdom doing the work, is you start to feel better when people freeload on it. We've done all this work, we've built this, we've done all this over time, and then you elevate this knucklehead Let's get inside their head a little bit. Are they that wrong? Jesus, you're out eating with all these sinners. You're spending all your time with them when you just insulted us in our house when we had you over for lunch. Goodness sakes, what's this Jesus think he's doing? We should note that the prodigal brother has already gotten everything he should get from the father. Whose fatted calf is getting killed? Is it his fatted calf? Or does this come out of the brother's share? That ring, that ex the best robe in the house, that brother that's in the field is thinking that's his robe. That's his ring. Those are his sandals. Because this brother that went off, he doesn't deserve anything from this household anymore. I should have 100% of the inheritance. This prodigal son should have zero. And this is how the Jews thought. This is how the Pharisees thought. These Gentiles, they walked away from God a long time ago. These non-Jewish, those tribes, Asher, Dan, they walked away a long time ago. The Samaritans, man, they're corrupting Judaism. They don't deserve anything, not one thing from God. But God doesn't see it that way. He really doesn't. But he was angry and would not go in. So, again, this other son, if you just try to put yourself in his head a little bit, I think sometimes we all do this. There's stuff in the kingdom we don't want to do because we're frankly upset about stuff. We don't like how things are operating, so we get bitter, we get mad. And this guy, he won't even join the party because he's so worried about who gets what. And this is, the this is the sin of the Pharisees. They won't even join the party where all these sinners are coming home to the, to the faith. 
and Jesus is celebrating. I like to think there was laughing, there were being merry, like it's there's music and there's dancing. Sometimes sinners know how to party better than Christians do. You ever notice that? We forget how to party. But there was music and there was dancing, there was celebration going on. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him, just like Jesus has been pleading with the Pharisees. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat, (laughs) right? There's an entire inheritance here, but he's worried about the goat. That I might make merry with my friends. By the way, a young goat's less than a fatted calf, by the way. That I might make merry. You don't even give me a little goat to go have a party with my friends. Yet you throw a full-on bash with a fatted calf for this idiot. Verse 30, but as soon as this son of yours, this son of yours, it's not his brother, right? He's disowned this guy. This son of yours who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him? There it is. Uh, Just a few pronouns in this passage. I, I, me, I, my. It's all about you, man. That's just the framework. This is the pharisaical thing. It's all about you. But it's not all about him. It's about the father's heart. The father's heart decides the inheritance. That kind of pharisaical thinking is selfish. It's about what I deserve, not about what the father wants to give. The other thing with the I deserve thing is we think that there's somehow a limit to God's inheritance and blessing. That if this person gets that, then I don't get this. That there's a zero-sum game. So the father pleads with him. Again, that's emphatic. Jesus conveys this with a very strong, forceful images. The father goes out and literally begs with the son, please see this as joyful. Please welcome your brother back home. Please understand that my will is that we're healed as a family and we're back together again. That's the heart of God. Healing, praise God. Dropsy's been healed, praise God. Raising the dead, we should praise God when somebody rises from the dead. That should all make us celebrate. It shouldn't make us feel like there's territory being lost. It's not wrong to be ardent in the law. It's called work, right? It's a good thing to want the law. It's wrong to not celebrate when other people want to join. And verse 31, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. There's no limit to what I'm going to give you. And it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother. Get, get how the father corrected him there. So your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Living a godly life is to be close to God. There's constant blessing in it, but there's also a danger that we forget how important it is to bring lost people in. That that is what we're here to do. Believe me, the pig poop is nothing to be jealous of. Honestly, to th- I, I remember hearing one young person say, man, I, I should go out and just live a sinful lifestyle so I have a good testimony to tell. Because they saw all these testimonies of people who had lived in sin for so long and then they repented. And the person was like, I, just, I, need, I need like more of a sketchy history so I can tell a good testimony. No, there's nothing to be jealous of with the pig poop. If you've lived your whole life and been following the king your whole life, join the party. Be making merry and be glad, literally the language here, make merry and be glad when you see new people coming into the kingdom, getting cleaned up. Be thankful you never lived in the pig poop. I'm thinking Jesus was laughing with them, enjoying it, sharing the word along with the feast. There's a joy here that the Pharisees could hear from a distance but couldn't see in their own heart. 
just a happiness. Again, Jesus uses the phrase, was dead and alive again. Jesus is still planting seeds as to what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus is restoring a sinner to the family. So one accusation, three stories. He tells three parables that reframe the accusation. Here's the accusation. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And we get blessed by three stories that tell us the heart of God. It just doesn't look like that. He's not a man. He's a shepherd. They're not worthless. They're silver coins. They're not sinners. They're family. They're our, this is our brother we're talking about. And they aren't just eating. They're welcoming a lost son coming home. And he corrects that accusation. God searches, he seeks, and he even runs towards the lost. Three different images and three different parables. He doesn't push them away. He seeks, he searches, he runs. The lost, the message is clear. Repent and come home. It's not a battle between a sinful life and a godly life. It's simply a a misdirection, right? The home is the godly life. Let Jesus pick you up. Let the light of the word shine upon you so he can find you. And let the spirit of our father welcome us with love. That's salvation. Salvation is grace. It's undeserved, it's unlimited, and it's unwarranted. So sons, humans that repent and serve, humans that grow bitter at forgiveness itself are not sons. They're outside the feast. And so the accusation of the Pharisees isn't that they haven't followed the law. It's that they're not willing to come to the party. And that there's two sides to the coin. There is orderly, godly living, the law, and there is a celebration and a joy that is part of it throughout the Old and New Testament. The Christian life should be filled with both. The clarity, purity of the law, but also the joy and merriment of those that feast together. So let's pray. And then we're going to go feast together. We'll do both things. Dear Lord and King, we love you. We love your heart. We know that you seek and look to find the lost. Lord, you found us when we were lost. And Lord, we come home and and sometimes we have some dirt on us. So Lord, um, we deserve nothing. We have earned nothing. In fact, we have fallen away and lost our path. And and Lord, on a daily basis, I find that my own concerns compete with the concerns of the kingdom. So Lord, help help me to each day die to myself and take up your cross on the journey that you have modeled for us and the one that we should be following in, Lord. Help us to take up those things, um, to do the work of the kingdom, to work in your fields because they're ripe for harvest. Um, And the workers are few. So Lord, help us to have a heart. And Lord, help us to not look at sinners as our enemy. Help us to not look at Hamas as our enemy. Help us to not look at the uh, of communities of people that defy your law as our enemy, Lord. They're lost family. And Lord, help us to see them as that. And if as they take steps towards your kingdom, Lord, help us to celebrate and welcome them in each of those steps. Lord, and we're not here to celebrate or excuse pig filth. We get that it's filth. But we do have a soul that gets lost and has bound themselves and shackled themselves to masters that don't love them. So, Lord, we look for freeing them from those shackles and bringing them into the welcoming embrace of of your kingdom. And, Lord, we know we get that from you. In our hearts and in our flesh, we'll act just like the Pharisees. There'll be a little piece of us that gets jealous. 
Lord, please just, again, kill that too. And may we just have hearts that embrace and love because we know that your feast will be full, that heaven will have a large number of people, there will be many people in your kingdom. So Lord, help us to just have your heart about who gets in and uh, to be welcoming and inviting. Help us to go seek and s- seek for the lost. Help us to shine the light of your word into people's lives and help us to run towards people that are, that are redirecting themselves towards your kingdom. In Jesus' name, change us, Lord, change us. In Jesus' name.